would you say is your greatest human need? If you were to sit before God right now, God came down and asked you a question and said, hey, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? What's, your, what's the thing that, that's consuming your mind right now? What's the thing that you need? Uh, whatever it is, I'll, I'll give it to you. What, what would that thing be? What would rise to the surface? What would that, that human need be? All of us are living in a such a way that um, if it were to be opposite engineered, you could figure out what we think we need is. Right? Some of us are spending our entire life chasing after something uh, that we think we need. And, and, when, and, and our faith is manifest in the way we spend our life to achieve certain things. Now, the salvation that you think you need determines the gospel that you do believe. The salvation that you think you need determines the gospel that you believe. And whatever that gospel is, whatever that news or that answer is, has real life implications for right now. Whatever you think you need, the way you live, it has real implications uh, right now in this particular moment. So I remember some time ago, um, you know, in our, in our text, there's, uh, there's this moment of interruption while Jesus is preaching. We're going to see. It's a pretty significant interruption. And I remember uh, some years ago, I was preaching at a church um, in, down in Wairika, and I was kind of the guest speaker, you know, filling the pulpit for that morning. And... Uh, and there was an interruption, just similar to this story here that we're going to look at. There was an interruption to the service. Uh, this man, older gentleman, probably in his 70s, he walked into the sanctuary. It was probably 20 minutes into my sermon. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what he was doing. He starts walking down the aisle kind of slowly. I thought, well, maybe he's going to slide into his seat or something. And he didn't. He kept walking and kept walking. And he finally came all the way up to the front, just like if you can imagine that happening right now. And I sort of had to stop and go, hey, man, can I, can I help you out? You know, and he said, can I ask a question? Now, in my head, I'm used to disruption. I'm thinking this guy's trying to get attention. He's trying to get people to look at him. He wants to disrupt this. And, and, but I was kind. I was, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to answer any question. But, but right now, I'm right in the middle of a sermon. So why don't you just grab a seat? In about 20 minutes, I'll wrap it up, and we can go, and you can ask me a question. And he's like, doesn't really say anything. He's very hollow. He turns around, and he just kind of walks out of, out of the building. I didn't think much of it. I'm like, you know, I'll follow up with him later. I'll figure out what's going on. And uh, never, I don't, you know, I, I think uh, I asked the elders later, hey, what happened? Was it that guy? Well, he didn't want to talk to anybody. He wanted to talk to the pastor. And he thought I was the pastor because I was filling the pulpit, uh, which I wasn't. I was just there. So I go home. We, we come back to Medford from, from that uh, preaching day, uh, just going on with life. And in the evening, I get a call from the elder of that church. He also happened to be the, the chief, uh, the fire chief uh, in Wairika. And he said, hey, you know, I just want to thank you for coming down and preaching. It was encouraging and everything. And I really hate to have to tell you this, but unfortunately, that man that walked down the aisle, uh, he took his life tonight. And uh, he said, I got the call on my radio a few minutes ago, and, and uh, I think he was searching for something. I think that's why he came into the church. And that was hard. <laughs> like, that was hard to, uh, it was hard to deal with. Um, at first, you know, you have feelings of guilt. Should I, have, should I have stopped the sermon and gone to the side and had a conversation with him? And uh, Well, no, I, I, I didn't know, right? And so I, 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 didn't, I didn't really know that was what was going on. And why am I bringing this story up? For, first of all, because it has some parallels with the story we're going to look at this morning, and that is a story of interruption and someone that is coming to um, a, a particular event with a severe need. Um, but the other reason I bring that up is, is the, the real-world implications of thinking that what you need is one thing when what you really need is something else are very real. This man thought that he needed uh, relief from his pain. That was the, the symptom that he could feel. 
And so he came searching for something. He came to the church hoping maybe the pastor could help him somehow. He didn't get that. So he, he, he turned to a, a, a gospel, if you will, and the gospel was, if I end my life, the pain will stop. That was his belief. I need to end the pain, so I'm going to end my life to end the pain. And he believed that. That was a false gospel. That wasn't the relief that he needed, was it? What did he need? What did he need? He needed Christ. He needed Christ. He needed forgiveness. He needed to be freed from the bondage and the weight and the severity of sin, his own sin, the sin of those around him, the sin of the world. I found out uh, in days later with a follow-up call, I found out that his son had taken his life months prior and he was grieving his son's loss and he didn't know what to do with the pain and he was searching for answers. What is the greatest need? What is your greatest need? Our text this morning is one of my favorites. And it plays tricks on you because this man comes into this scene, he's lowered through the roof, as we'll see, um, and, and you think you know what his need is, right? You think you know what he needs. This man's a paralytic. He needs what? He needs to be healed, right? Yet Jesus does what Jesus always does. He doesn't do what you think he's gonna do. <laughs> and he actually illuminates a more severe need that this man had. How many of you know when you come to Christ and you're hurting and you're broken, true and authentic faith doesn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, fix this. True and authentic faith comes to Jesus and say, fix me, whatever it means, whatever it takes. I don't know what needs to be fixed, but fix me. This man comes to Jesus open-handed and says, fix me, and Jesus does. He fixes his true need, as we're gonna see. Let's spend some time interacting with the passage. Mark chapter two. Just a quick uh, running start here. Jesus, or uh, pardon me, Mark has been um, illustrating the authority of Jesus in his ministry uh, through manifestations. Uh, the way that he preached was different. He was declared to be the son of God um, by God himself, cracking open the heavens and speaking over Jesus as he was baptized. All of these series of things have happened. And now Mark has reached the pinnacle of his illustration of Jesus' authority over the world in that Jesus now will forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God, right? As we'll see. This also starts the first of five interactions that Jesus is going to have with the religious leaders. So for the next few weeks, we'll be looking at these different interactions that Jesus has. This is the first one. Let's dive in. Mark chapter two, verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So if you remember from last week, Jesus uh, was preaching throughout Galilee. Uh, he was on a preaching tour. And after some amount of days, he returns back to Capernaum, which was kind of like his home base, uh, if you remember, uh, which Peter's house was in Capernaum. And so uh, after some time, he returns home. And when it says home, it's probably pretty safe to um, imagine that this is Peter's home which kind of gives the story an interesting nuance when you <laughs> consider the fact that we're about to look at a serious destruction of Peter's home and his roof. Uh, so that kind of makes it interesting. Like, I, if I could tune into this from an angle, I would love to see Peter's face when the tiles and the dirt start getting ripped off of his roof, right? Um, he probably would be a little uh, upset. Verse two, and many were gathered together so that there was no room, no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to, to them. So the size of the crowd is 
large. Uh, you can't get into the house. It's even outside of the door is crowded. And the purpose of the crowd is Jesus is preaching. You know, we think of Jesus, we think of him always healing, but in reality, the primary uh, substance of Jesus' ministry was preaching. It was a preaching ministry. What is he preaching? He's preaching the word, it says, and he's declaring the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is now breaking into this world. So Jesus is teaching. And it notes that there's a massive crowd there. So the word has gotten out that Jesus is back in Capernaum after his teaching tour, and everybody wants to see what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of buzz going on. Imagine Capernaum is, uh, in, ter- in terms of the, the day, it's a small town like Grants Pass. You know, there's, 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 it doesn't take long for word to spread. And stuff's been happening in Capernaum. So everybody's pressing and they want to see Jesus do a miracle. It's a crowd. Now, quick side word here for you about crowds. We think of crowds in the West. We think crowds are how we gauge success, right? Um, This is what we've done in Western evangelicalism for the last 40, 50, maybe 60 years. How do you gauge if a ministry is healthy? Well, lots of people come to it. If lots of people come to it, then it's healthy, right? It's um, interesting, that's really not a biblical paradigm. In fact, the New Testament, when it talks about crowds, it actually talks about crowds almost in a negative sense. Uh, it, it, crowds were considered to be, uh, by the biblical authors, not a sign of success, but a, a sign of obtrusion, a sign of, of fickle people. The people that were in the crowds weren't followers of Jesus. They weren't disciples. They were um, wanting to be entertained. They were wanting to see something cool. And, and oftentimes, the crowd would actually keep the hurting people from getting to Jesus, which is actually kind of a problem. And if you remember, by looking at the, um, the whole of the New Testament, it's actually a crowd that actually ended up condemning Jesus. So Jesus had this interesting relationship with crowds. In one sense, he, he was trying to draw a crowd. He was hoping to grab some measure of attention, but the New Testament never exchanges crowds for disciples. And just a quick side point here, we've done that in America. We've conflated discipleship with crowds. We said, well, discipleship looks like being part of the crowd, but that's actually not a disciple. A disciple isn't the person who sits back here and watches, wondering if something interesting is going to happen. A disciple isn't someone that that just kind of finds themselves in a sea of faces. The disciple is the person that emerges from the crowd and says, I want to follow you, and I want to apprentice you, and I want to be with you. I want to commit my life to you. And what we see in the biblical narrative is we see disciples emerging from the crowds. We see the woman with the issue of blood in the crowd. Everyone's pressing into Jesus, and she emerges as the one that had faith to not try to get something from him, but to just get to him. And the crowd parts and Jesus sees a disciple. So I'm not belittling crowds. I'm not saying that crowds aren't important, but I'm saying that there is a difference between crowds and disciples. And my question for you would be, which are you? Are you part of a crowd or are you part of the disciple? Fads are easy to get caught up in, aren't they? And in many ways in America, it's still cool in some circles to be a Christian. That doesn't make you a follower. It doesn't mean you've committed your life fully to Jesus. The man that we're about to look at distinguished himself from the crowd (laughs) at an immense cost to himself. An immense cost to himself. Verse three. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, so you can see there, (laughs) the crowd's in the way, right? Uh, Because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Let me try to uh, give you this picture a little bit here, okay? So uh, Peter's house, if this was in fact Peter's house, was not very large, probably the size of your living room. Um, And the, the houses in that day were constructed with flat roofs, Um, for functional reasons, uh, with stone steps that would go up the side, up into the top of the roof, and it was a place to escape from the heat of the day. You would cook inside, uh, get stuffy inside, you didn't have uh, air conditioning inside, so you would escape up the stairs and you would spend oftentimes uh, your prayer time or whatever it was up on the top of the roof. The roof was constructed of long wooden beams, and those beams, just similar to our houses today, like trusses, uh, would have had to have been filled with something. The way they would fill those, those beams, maybe they say about uh, you know, a foot to two feet apart, they would fill them with thatch. They'd cross it with thatch or sticks, and then they would fill that in with grass and dirt and all these kinds of things. They build out of the materials that are laying around, just like God does, right? Just like you guys, right? He builds out of the material that's laying around. So they built this stuff out of clay and, and, and sticks and beams. And sometimes if you had enough money, you would even lay tile over the top of that. Uh, otherwise, you'd have to ma- do a lot of maintenance on this kind of, kind of roof. So these guys can't get in. They're determined to get their friend to Jesus, these four men. They're carrying him on this sort of flat bed that would have probably had ropes holding him up. They're frustrated, and so they go up the steps, and they begin to find a way to get into the roof. Um, some of you guys grew up in church. You've heard this story a million times, and you're just glazed over right now. Can you just think about this for a minute? I mean, these guys are like, we're literally going through the roof. Get my circular saw, right? I mean, we're popping a hole in this thing. We are literally digging through the the dirt and the sticks. And and to get a hole big enough to lower a bed through would have been quite a sight to see. Now, imagine being on the inside. So it's a moment like this, except I'm not Jesus and uh, he would have been way more interesting. But let's just say it's a moment like this where where someone's preaching and you're kind of following his logic and and things like this. And and, and as a a preacher, it's super frustrating when you get distracted, right? And then all of a sudden you hear this rumbling up here. By the way, I hear uh, sounds all week long when I'm working because the birds like go up here and it's like thump, 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 thump. And there's no insulation in this roof. So I hear them and then I I watch them walk across the skylight. It's pretty entertaining looking at a, a, you know, a bird from the bottom up. Anyways, I don't know why I said all that. So you're sitting here and all of a sudden you just see dirt falling and sticks falling. And it's not like two seconds later, bam, he pops through the ceiling. It would have taken like 10 or 15 minutes for this guy to get his full grown body down. What are they doing in those 15 minutes? That's what I want to know. What are they doing? Is Jesus just kind of like, anyways, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, blah, blah, blah. Or, or are they just sitting there waiting? Are they just watching? I mean, what's going on? Like, I don't know. It doesn't say. But regardless, it would have been distracting. It would have been, it would have been very embarrassing for the man being lowered down. Note that. He's probably wearing a robe. Okay, so you can imagine. Um, there, there may be, it's, just, it's awkward for him. It's much easier to be the guy lowering people than it is to be the one being lowered, isn't it? Can you imagine how embarrassing it all? The emphasis of this is on the faith of the four friends, but in reality, it takes way more faith to be lowered sometimes than it is to do the lowering. It's hard to be the one who needs help, isn't it? It's hard. So this is the scene that's going on. Uh, This isn't the point of the passage, although many sermons have been preached on this, but it's worth noting uh, that it's good to have good friends, isn't it? My wife and I brought home two little foster kids this week, and, uh, and it was crazy. We're like, oh my goodness, we got five kids under the age of seven now. This is going to be unreal. Um, and I was humbled this week by how good of friends we have. 
Unreal. And you guys, our church, I mean, we were just, the, like within hours, Stephen River were over at our house washing our dishes and putting together a bed that another one of our friends, Brian, had just bought and mailed over from Target and we got meals coming and it's like, I was humbled by how good of friends we have. You guys are good friends. And you know, the gospel demands those kinds of relationships. Because when you are overcome by the grace of God towards you, you have none but to give back to his people. This is gospel love, gospel affection. The gospel demands such community. And that's why you need this, by the way. You don't come here for a church service. You don't come here just to sit and leave. You come here because you need a family. You need friends that are gonna lower you. You know, every single one of you guys, if you're not there right now, you will be soon in a place where you need to cry out and say, I need help. Will you have friends that will do this for you? Don't be alone. Don't do Christianity alone. It was never meant to be alone. You know, Jesus notes their faith. Do you see that? And you notice that the faith that he notes isn't primarily or singularly, singularly the faith of the paralytic. It's the faith of the group. We, another issue I have with Western Christianity sometimes, we've made faith all one-dimensional. It's all about your personal faith. And there's truth to that. But faith in the New Testament is a corporate reality. We have a faith collectively. And that collective faith brings freedom and wholeness in people's lives. It's a beautiful thing. So you don't just need to have your own personal faith. Can you have a, a Christian walk sitting at home, um, never being in community, watching YouTube sermons and listening to uh, you know, Bethel worship or whatever, and that's my church? Sure, but that's not this. You need the body. You need the body to lower you down through the roof at times. Man, I've been this guy before. I've been this guy where I, I'm just like, calling friends like, I don't even know what to do. Will you just help me get to the feet of Jesus? We need that. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And we'll touch more on that later because it's a significant thing that Jesus just does. But let's press through the narrative. Verse six, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Isn't that interesting? They're not questioning out loud. They get more bold as time goes on. But at this point, they're just kind of like, what? Did he just say your sins are forgiven? And Jesus picks up on it. Now, I don't know if this is just a, like he could tell like their body language or if this is sort of a supernatural dis, you know, gift of discernment thing going on here. Regardless, Jesus is in their heads and he's in a lot of people's heads in the New Testament. You think Jesus doesn't know what you're thinking? <laughs> you think he doesn't know what you're feeling? You think he doesn't know the honesty of, of what you're really dealing with? He does. And he sees these guys over here sitting. Note that they're sitting, by the way. Um, he sees them, and he, he instantly discerns that they're questioning in their hearts. He says, uh, why does this man speak like that? Here's what he knows they're thinking. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Let me take a moment here and unpack this because the, the scribes, which are the, the um, professional religious leaders of the day, they are Torah law, uh, lawyers, essentially. They're, they're paid to know the, the scriptures, very similar to, to myself or, or a seminary professor. They're highly respected. Uh, they're sitting there and they are scandalized by the fact that Jesus just forgave this man's sin. Why? Well, for one... The commentator Edwards, he says, apart from the act of absolution on the day of atonement, not even the chief priests could forgive sins. There's one day a year where the high priest could forgive sin and it was corporately, it was for all Israel and it was only when the, 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 the sacrificial lamb was brought. They're not at the temple, they're up on a lake in Galilee and Jesus is a nobody, he's a carpenter inside of a small house, crowded and Jesus just did what the high priest can't even do. 
It's astounding. Not only that, the scripture makes it clear that Messiah himself wouldn't even forgive sin. In fact, in fact we don't, you won't find a messianic scripture that says that when Messiah comes, he's going to forgive sins. The scripture makes it clear. Only, listen, only God forgives sins. Isn't that amazing? In fact, blasphemy is punishable, according to Leviticus 24, 16, by death, which is ultimately what they would end up doing for Jesus. So my point is very simple. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knows that. What is he saying? I am God. Is it astounding? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, I know. He says, I know. I am God. The implication there is explicit. Jesus is God. In verse 8, and they immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, now he's going to ask them a question. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed, and walk? So Jesus is putting a premise out here. And he's saying, hey, what do you guys think? What's easier, to see a paralytic stand up and walk or for his sins to be forgiven? What do you guys think? What's easier? Yeah. So Jesus knows what they think, right? And what they think is, it's harder to make this man rise. Why do they think that? They think that because we are totally limited to our physical dimension. I... I hesitated saying this. I had coffee one time with a couple that tried coming to this church. They, they only made it one week. Um, and they, I went to coffee with them, and I said, hey, you know, how's it going? And, and, uh, and they said, hey, we have one problem with your church. And I said, what? And they said, well, we think you should be praying to raise dead people. And I said, we are. We're praying that people would be raised spiritually from the dead. This is the greatest miracle of all. And they said, no, 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 no. We should be raising dead people. And I said, why would I want to raise a dead person so they could die again? We're about raising spiritually dead people. Which is the greater miracle? That someone would be raised from spiritual death is the greatest miracle of all. This is what Jesus is implying, but what he's also implying is is that you guys are obsessed with the physical and you think that the greater miracle would be to raise this man. So he acquiesces to their unbelief and he does exactly what he knows they want him to do. Or maybe they don't. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What a drop the mic moment. I just forgave this guy's sins. You're questioning that I have the authority to do that. Like you said, Brad, how could you possibly know that I did it? It's like me saying, you know, somewhere in the multiverse, I just got a strike. I'm bullying there. You'd be like, what? Like, yeah, prove me wrong. (laughs) You know? And then if I said, you know, as I started flying around the room, you'd go, oh, well, okay, maybe you are, in, you know, bowling somewhere in the multiverse. Uh, did I just go Marvel on it? Okay, whatever. Um, regardless, Jesus backs up his authority. He backs up his claim to be able to forgive sin by making this man creatively stand and walk. It's unreal. And then notice the crowd's reaction. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And they hadn't, ever. They'd seen healings in Israel, but they'd never seen healings by someone who claimed to forgive sin. Who is this? Jesus. 
good grief. What do we do with this guy? Well, either you worship him or you kill him. Those are your options. Which one do you want to do? What do we do with this? Let's step back here for a moment. I want to ask two questions that I think are going to get us into the heart of this passage and what it really should be saying to us. This isn't really a passage about good friends, though that's a side note. It's not nearly a passage about physical healing either. This passage, its primary meaning, I think, can be answered in this question. Why does Jesus forgive this man's sin? We need to ask that question. Why does Jesus forgive this man's sin? Um, Can we just think about how weird this is for a minute? The guy's paralyzed. He just got lowered through the roof, obviously for the reason of what? Getting healed. That's what he came for, right? That's what he wants. Everybody knows that. Is Jesus, like, did, did he have, not have his coffee yet that morning? I mean, like, did he forget, like, oh, oh, you wanted to get healed. I'm sorry, I thought you wanted to be forgiven, you know? Like, this is some kind of a, a booth with the priest in it, you know? Like, did, what are you doing, Jesus? I mean, I can imagine Peter, who's still probably upset about his roof, kind of nudging Jesus and like, hey, hey, Jesus, I think he wants you to heal him. I don't think he wants you to forgive his sins. I think he wants you to heal. Is that what's happening? I mean, is Jesus confused about what this guy really needs? No, he's not. He's not confused at all. He knows exactly what this guy needs. So we need to ask the question, why is Jesus forgiving this man's sin? And the answer is because Jesus knows what this man truly needs. And it's not a physical healing. This man has the paralysis of sin. He's a sinner. Some commentaries try to say, well, I think this man had a particular proclivity to sin, and Jesus knew that. Um, It was actually well known in the first century that oftentimes if you were a paralytic from the waist down, it was because of some kind of a venereal disease, and so perhaps this man had a life of sexual promiscuity. I don't think that's true. I don't know. Maybe it is. It doesn't matter. The reality is, is that he's a sinner, and so are we. And Jesus is not just identifying this man's greatest need. He's identifying every human's greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sins. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's identifying the real issue. Man's greatest enemy is sin. His greatest enemy is sin. You say, Sam, how is sin my greatest enemy? I'm glad you asked me that. Let me give you a theological answer. Three answers. Why is sin paralyze us? How are we paralyzed in sin, all of us? How does this man who is paralyzed by sin actually represent all of us? We'll tell you. There's three ways that sin paralyzes you. Three ways. Jot them down. Number one, and this is good theology. I didn't write this. This is is a rubric that's been around for a lot of years. There's three ways that sin paralyzes you. Number one, you are paralyzed by sin's power if you've not been forgiven. You are paralyzed by sin's power That means that apart from Christ, sin has control over you. It has control over you. A couple references. Ephesians 2. You, Paul says, were, before you were saved, dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. Romans 6.20. You were formerly slaves to sin. So apart from Christ, who's your master? Sin is your master. Remember, God comes to Cain, and Cain has this sin uh, that's, that's now existing within his heart because his parents have just introduced sin into the world through the fall, and Cain is feeling this emotion that perhaps he hadn't felt before, jealousy, anger, and he's looking at his brother who's being accepted by God, and he goes, I hate him. I want to kill him. 
first murder in history. And you know what? God comes to Cain knowing his heart, knowing the sin that is now controlling Cain because it's been introduced into the universe through Adam and Eve's fall. He comes to Cain. You know what he says? Cain, why are you angry? He says, watch out, buddy. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. It's an amazing verse. The picture God is trying to paint there is of a lion or some kind of a predatory cat crouching outside the door, appearing small and harmless. Like it's not really a big deal. Like you don't really need to worry about it. That's why I freak out the most about cougars when I'm in the woods. I don't care about bears. They're big. If I bump into them, I'm going to hear. Cougars stalk you, right? They crouch. They're going to get you and they'll get your their teeth into your jugular, right? Uh, It's terrifying. So God is saying sin is like this lion, this predatory animal, and it's appearing small. And when you walk out the door, if you're not careful, it will have you. The idea is that now, because we live in a sinful world, sin's power is over you. We need to be set free from that power. Sin's power is over you. Romans says sin used the law as an agent to make us do more sin. My point is that no matter how much you manage your sin, are any of you guys managing sin right now? It's like where you just try to do not as much of it, usually so you don't have consequences. So no matter how much you manage sin, no matter how much you wound your sin, no matter how much you fight your sin, it's still going to rule you unless it's put to death. That's the first dimension of sin's paralysis. It's the first thing this man laying on the bed in front of Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with sin's power. It's ruling him. The second thing is the paralysis of sin's presence. The paralysis of sin's presence. See, not just that sin has power over you, sin is the environment that you are living in right now. Have you noticed that? If you don't believe me, just walk around Grant's Pass, one loop. You know what you're going to see? You're going to see vomit on the ground. You're going to see people screaming at cars. You're going to see homelessness. You're going to see pot shops. You're going to see drug addiction. You're going to see homelessness. One lap. I do it every day. That's called sin's presence. That's the fact that we live in a sinfully broken world. That is all because of sin. And we can try to figure out policy after policy and politician after politician, but at the end of the day, we live in a broken world. Sin's presence is manifest. We live in it. It needs to be undone. Romans 8.20, for creation was subjected to futility. It needs to be undone. No amount of righteous living is going to get rid of sin's presence. Jesus himself had to live in sin's presence. He was not a sinner, but he lived in a sinful world. That's why he died, was murdered, wept, experienced grief. And lastly, and most importantly, the dimension of sin that is in view in our text this morning is sin's penalty. So there's sin's power, there's sin's presence, and lastly, sin's penalty. Are you with me? I know this feels theological, but it's really important, so write it down. Sin's penalty. And sin's penalty is what Jesus is dealing with with this man right here. Sin's penalty means that not only are we under the power of sin, and not only do we live in a broken world that's broken by sin, we also owe a sin debt that we have occurred through living a sinful life. You know what your greatest problem is if you're not saved? It's not death, it's not sickness, it's not Satan. It is that you are at odds with a righteous and holy God. That is terrifying. That is your greatest need. What I just said is not very popular in progressive Christianity right now. There are many 
of those that call themselves Christians that are trying to change the gospel from being Jesus absorbing sin's penalty on the cross to Jesus defeating sin and darkness. They call the, what we would call the penal substitutionary atonement, God pouring out his wrath on the son, which is the gospel, by the way, they would call that divine child abuse, which I, when I hear that, I get, I get really frustrated. You're calling one of the most beautiful dimensions of the gospel that God would pour out his son or pour out his righteous wrath on his son instead of me, you're calling that divine child abuse? You don't understand the gospel. Jesus didn't sit before this paralytic and say, you have demons in your life and you have things in your life that are keeping you from being free and we just need to declare Christus victor over you, the victory of the cross. No, he forgives his sin because that's what he needs. Because apart from Christ, we stand before a holy and righteous God condemned. And our greatest need is to be, listen, reconciled to God. That's our need. That man that walked down the aisle to me that morning, he didn't need uh, food, he didn't need help, he didn't need uh, a new place to live, he didn't need a new body. You know what he needed? He needed to be forgiven. He needed to know that the reason he was hurting and aching was because sin is in this world. That he is living in a world that is filled with sin's presence and that he's under sin's power and that he's under sin's penalty. And like Pilgrim from Pilgrim's Progress, he's carrying the weight of sin's guilt. And he doesn't know how to deal with it. And taking your own life is not the answer. You don't need to take your life. You need to be forgiven. It's the answer. It's the gospel. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You need divine forgiveness. So we are paralyzed by sin because of sin's power, sin's presence, and sin's penalty. And we must be free from all three of those. And listen to me, in order for the gospel to be good news, it has to deal with all three of those things. And it does. It does. Another way to say it, without forgiveness, sin is our external enemy, our internal proclivity, and our eternal destiny. That's the reality of sin's paralysis. That's the reality of what this man is dealing with. And when he comes before Jesus, the great physician, the creator of the universe, the word himself, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, when he comes before Jesus, Jesus doesn't just see someone without legs. He sees someone that needs to be forgiven. And listen to me, he sees someone that he's going to go to the cross to forgive. How can Jesus grant forgiveness? Not only because he's God, but because he himself would pay for that forgiveness. Isn't that astounding? Jesus is looking at this man, and maybe it's just Hollywood thinking, but I can imagine uh, in, in just a moment, the cross flashes before Christ's eyes, and when he grants forgiveness, he's not saying, you know what, it's cool, I'll just forget your sin. He's saying, brother, I am going to pay for your sin. I am going to the cross to pay for your sin. What we find in this picture, we find in this text, is a reminder of our true enemy, and Jesus' true mission. Jesus didn't come just to heal a handful of people in Galilee. He did so. Jesus came, listen to me, this is so important. Jesus came to go to the cross to defeat sin from the inside out, to pay sin's penalty so that so that for those who receive that forgiveness, he can begin to overturn sin's power. You know, that's what God's doing in you right now, if you're a believer. If you're a Christian, your penalty has been forgiven, and now Jesus is freeing you from sin's power. It's called sanctification. 
Every day you wake up as a Christian, if you're growing, you should have less and less control from sin. You should be controlled more and more by God and less and less by sin. That's the putting to death of the flesh. That's called sanctification. And one day, one day, Jesus will come again and he will eradicate sin's presence. And the fullness of the gospel will be realized. Where do we live right now? We live right smack dab in the middle. We've been forgiven of sin's penalty. We're being transformed from sin's power. And someday soon we will be free from sin's presence. And I can't wait for that. The gospel is holistic. It fixes every need that you have. Your greatest need is the gospel. And Jesus is the only forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't look at this man before him so in need and say, brother, there's lots of ways to God. And I'm one of them. No. Jesus knows he's the only way. He's the only way to be forgiven. I have to ask you, do you see your greatest need in life as forgiveness? Do you see your greatest need in life as the gospel? Or do you think it's something else? Do you think it's weight loss? Do you think it's having a a, a compatible partner? Do you think it's success? Do you think it's being able to free yourself from that physical bondage you've been dealing with? Maybe that one surgery coming up and that one thing it's all that you're thinking about. It's all that you're working towards. I would just suggest to you that, that there is only one thing you truly need today in your soul, and that is forgiveness. You need the gospel, and anything less only addresses the symptoms. Something tells me this man, when Jesus declared sin, forgiven, forgiveness over him, it was not disappointed. You think about that? He's laying there. Jesus is like, your sins are forgiven. He's like, seriously? Like you're that kid on Christmas who, you know, got the G.I. Joe instead of the Legos or something? I I don't think that's what's happening here. Uh, This man has just been granted forgiveness by God himself. I don't think he's disappointed with the gift. Yet the kindness of God, and here's my second question of our text, the kindness of God is that he doesn't stop there. The second question we need to ask is, why does Jesus proceed to heal him physically? Why does Jesus say, okay, now I'm gonna heal you physically? And there's two answers one answer is to validate the authority or his authority to forgive sins. You know, the gospel wouldn't feel like very good news if Jesus went to the cross and somebody wrote down in a book somewhere that one time this Jesus went to a cross and paid for your sins. Great. How do I know that's true? I'll tell you how you know it's true. He rose from the dead. He backed it up. He forgave your sin and then he manifested that he had the authority to do that. Isn't that great? And that's why Christians cling to the resurrection. The cross is where our forgiveness was accomplished. The resurrection is where it's proven. And here we see a microcosm of the same thing. This, Jesus forgives this man's sin and then he backs it up. And this man's legs would forever be a testament to him that he was forgiven. And the resurrected Christ that now sits on the throne and is ruling over the church is a forever testament that we are forgiven because our Lord is not dead. He's alive. And he's coming back. Amen? It's good news. Second reason Jesus healed him physically is to foreshadow the fact that, listen to me, one day sin's presence will be gone. Jesus has a new body. Not a resurrected body like, like Lazarus that's just going to die again. No, no, no. A new resurrected body that's eternal. Eternally constructed for God's eternal purposes. I can't wait for that body. It's like waiting for the new iPhone, only way better. Oh, man. Sorry, all you non-iPhone people are like, excuse me? 
So what? Let me wrap this up. So what? I want you to think in terms of application here. I want you to, I want you to consider two postures. If you're taking notes, two postures that we need to learn from. The first posture is the posture of the paralytic. This is the posture of dependence. I want you this morning to walk out of here seeing your paralysis. That's not to say that that we are forever trapped in our sins. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the posture of this man is the key. The posture of how he comes to Christ is the key. See, this is how I often come to Christ in my flesh. I come and say, hey, Jesus, I got some great things for you. Um, Are you on board with what I'm doing? I got some legs. I got some arms. Can you empower what I want to do? And Jesus would come to me and say, no, you're a paralytic, buddy. You come to me, and I will decide what you're to do. The posture we need to embody here is that of the paralytic. So years back, I... um, I was asked by some friends that, that run an adult um, care, care center. Um, they deal with highly disabled adults. If I would come and I would play some music. And I said, of course. So I grabbed my guitar. And um, they said, can you bring some communion? I said, sure. So I get down there. And there's this man named Steve. And I'll never forget Steve. Steve was a doctor. Successful doctor. In this area, I believe. Something had happened. He had some kind of an accident in his life in his late 50s, early 60s, very in shape, very together person, all the things lined up in his life. Something had happened where he paralyzed himself to the nth degree. He couldn't even talk. Couldn't move his hands. He could blink barely, and he could barely chew. So painful to watch. Have you ever interacted with someone that can't talk to you? An adult? And, their brain, and his brain was totally fine. So he's a very intelligent man, very successful man, entirely trapped in the paralysis of his body. And the lady that that was running this care center, she said, "Um, we don't know Steve. We don't know if he's a believer. We're just assuming that he is. Would you play a couple songs? Would you tell him the gospel? And would you feed him communion? So I literally have to put put the thing, like a priest, you know? Like I had to put it in his mouth. It was the most awkward thing at first. I'm like, gosh, what if he doesn't want me to do this? I mean, what if he's just sitting there like, oh, I hate this guy, go away. You know, like, I don't want your bread, you know? I mean, how do I know? He can't, he can't talk to me, but I just, in faith, I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna administer communion to this guy. So dead, told him the gospel, read him some scripture, prayed, and I put the bread in his mouth and I put the cup in his mouth and I'll never have a clue whether he wanted me to do that or not. But it's a vivid picture in my head forever and will ever forever be of the way that I come to Christ. Lord, <laughs> I have no ability. I have no strength. I have nothing to contribute. Will you just take me and do what you want to do? Some of you guys are coming to Jesus and you have not yet assumed that posture. You're still waiting for him to meet you on your terms. You're coming to him and you're saying, I'm here for a healing. And Jesus is saying, you don't get to choose how I heal you. You have to surrender to the way that I administer healing. There is a crisis point that happens in your life when you are at a point where you would literally have nothing to turn to but Jesus. Have you ever had that point in your life? For many of you, it's the moment that you got saved. I've had many of those. One of them was when I got saved. I was so desperate. I, was, I had zero, I had nothing to look to. And that's where exactly where God needed to corner me so that I looked to him. That's the reality of paralysis. And as Christians, we need to realize that we are always needing to assume that posture. We always need to assume that posture. Have you come to the crisis point of total surrender in your life? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you haven't. (laughs) Okay? There will come a time where God will take all the things that you look to in place of him. 
The second posture I want you to see, and then we'll close, is the posture of unbelief. The posture of unbelief. See, it's not just Jesus and this paralytic. There's someone else in the room. You remember? Who is it? The scribes. And the scribes, you can note it in the passage, they're sitting. They're sitting, which is interesting because it's standing room only and the sick guy can't even get in. But what are the Pharisees doing? They're sitting, which means they've been given the chief seats. They've been given the privilege. So this is the posture of comfort. And I just want to say one last word to you guys this morning. Avoid the posture of comfort because the posture of comfort is what keeps you from the posture of the paralytic. It's what keeps you from being made whole. One man walked out of that room whole. Some men walked out of the room still in their sins. The ones that were still in their sins were the ones that were most comfortable. There is a comfort that we need to avoid. The comfortable seat of the Pharisees. How do we know if we're in that seat? Or how, I should say, how do we avoid the seat? How do we avoid the comfortable seat of the Pharisees? Let me just throw a couple things out. Number one, don't confuse the comfort of cultural acclamation with the peace of Christian maturation. What I mean by that, <clears throat> losing my voice, what I mean by that is don't assume that because you are getting really good at going to church and talking to Christians and praying out loud and you have all the right things to say and you know how to fit in and no one's looking at you strange anymore and you're, you're doing all the right things and you're raising your hands at the right time and you're serving at church, that somehow you're no longer a paralytic. That's not necessarily Christian maturity. Some dairy, that's just learning how to be comfort in a Christ, comfortable in a Christian environment. I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care how sanctified you are. I don't care how long it's been since you've done that sin. You are still the paralytic. You still are completely in need of God's grace. And we need to confess that to the Lord and to ourselves and to others daily. The weakness of our flesh so that we can drink of the cup of grace of God. Take the posture, instead of the posture of the scribes, take the posture of the paralytic. Instead of the posture of the scribes, take the posture of the four friends. I can't help but wonder, I got, I'm the backstory, I like read between the lines, and I'm like, why are these four guys doing this? Maybe they were already healed. Maybe they already had an interaction with Jesus. I don't know. But the posture I would like to take is the guy on top of the roof, lowering my friends to the same grace that I myself have received. Constant determination to bring the too far gone to Jesus. In conclusion, Christians need the gospel. It is the whole answer. It is the whole answer. This week, you will be tempted as you feel stress, anxiety, sadness, whatever, you will be tempted to turn to something other than Jesus for that. You will be tempted to believe a false gospel. I just want to remind you, there is only one answer to your truest human need. And it's coming to Christ, completely abandoned, and letting him minister to you believing in his grace, believing in his forgiveness. I want to encourage you, when you read this parable, may it be an eternal reminder of you, that for you, that God found us unable to do anything for ourselves. It reminds me of Mephibosheth. You guys remember Mephibosheth? He was a paralytic, just like this. He was the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. And David wanted to bless Jonathan, even though he already died. So he said, can you go find me somebody from Jonathan's house? And they find this cripple named Mephibosheth, who was hiding, afraid of David. And David brings him to his table and he gives him his best food. And he takes care of him, not because he deserved it, but because of David's kindness. We are the paralytic. Reminds me of the woman who, who at the feet of Jesus is washing his feet with her uh, tears. 
And Jesus rebukes the scribes and says, you guys didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't do anything. Yet this woman, he is here. She has much sin, he says. And then in that moment, he forgives her sin. And then he proceeds to tell the story about uh, the person that was forgiven little and the person that was forgiven a lot. And the point is, the person that was forgiven the most loves the most. What does it mean to grow as a Christian? To become more and more and more aware of your paralysis. I'll say that again. That's the point of the whole sermon. I'm going to shut up. Okay. The, Christian matru- the maturity of the Christian is growing up more and more and more to realize your own paralysis and your own need for God's kindness and God's grace. Amen.